Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you. Those songs are so real. And, and yet we, we sometimes struggle to feel the weight of what happened on the cross, what happened in the tomb. I pray that today, Father, that you would be so gracious to us in coming and being with this people, in, in pressing into our hearts what you have for us today, Father. I pray that you would remove every potential error that I might say out of my mouth and that by your grace only what you want to be communicated would be communicated and it would hit our hearts, my heart especially, and that we would receive it with joy, Father God. We give you all the glory. Be exalted today, Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. So if you were with us last week, we began a series that we are calling Grace Be With You. This series uh, is really, the, the title of it is our emphasis on the last line in the book of Colossians, which we've been going through for the last year. This line, Grace Be With You. And uh, Paul has, in writing this letter, commended to the Colossian believers grace. He's given them grace from God in the words of God. And he's really praying, hoping, and commending to them that what he's spoken of in this letter would remain with them, that they would receive it and embrace the great realities, the great truths that he's communicated to them, and that they would be changed by that. And so we find ourselves now in the final greetings of Colossians. Final greetings are the very closing parts to Paul's epistles. And um, like we mentioned last week, though they seem safe, though they seem innocuous and very pragmatic, he's just thanking people, he's just saying people are greeting the Colossian believers, um, they are anything but safe and anything but innocuous because these final greetings seem to reach into other parts of the letter and draw from deep rich theological wells that Paul has dug out that we've already plumbed over the last year and represent these to the Colossian believers before he signs off, before he gives the letter to Tychicus and Tychicus takes it to the Colossians across the Mediterranean Sea. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the next two verses that we've got, verse 10 and verse 11, and just see what God shows us. So Colossians 4 verses 10 through 11, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. So that's our passage for today. Safe, innocuous, but not really, and we'll find out why today. So it seems like a simple greeting. Paul is telling the uh, Colossians, the people who are with him, and that these people send their greetings to the Colossian church as this letter comes to a close. And last week, we, we saw that these are practical. They are pretty straightforward, but there are deep roots that draw strength from different parts of this book, and we're going to look at that today. In other words, Paul's greeting at the end here, he's not wasting ink. His greeting at the end here has profound meaning and they connect upon closer uh, inspection to things that he's already mentioned. For example, last week, something I failed to really emphasize, um, so if you, were, if you were here last week, this will be 
something that will make a lot more sense now. Um, last week, we looked at Tychicus and Onesimus, these two guys who carried the letter from Paul to the Colossian church. And these two men who were carrying the letter saw that it wasn't a trivial thing. They're not just bringing a piece of paper to the Colossian church. They knew at the time that it was written that this was part of scripture. This was the word of God, which makes it a massive thing that they're crossing the Mediterranean with something that's going to be in a Bible one day. And they knew that it was God's grace given to the Colossian believers, so it added significance to that. But Paul has already engaged multiple times across the course of the Colossian book the significance and the sufficiency of the word of God and the gospel. For example, chapters 1, verses 5 through 7 says the gospel, which is God's grace in truth, is bearing fruit in the Colossian believers, in the Colossian church, and throughout the entire world. And in verse 23, he says that the, the, the gospel has been preached in his ministry throughout all creation, everywhere. And so the bottom line is when Paul writes these closing readings, like we saw last week, he's not wasting ink. This greeting is pointing to some massive truth. So the question we've got today is, what is he talking about here? What, what things are he, is he drawing from the letter to bring this up, this greeting? What significance does it have? Verse 10, he begins with a simple list of names. Um, people who genuinely want the Colossian church to know that they're loved, they're cared for, they're prayed for. And he starts with Aristarchus, who's this fellow prisoner of Paul. And then he goes to, to Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas. And Mark, you already know because Mark wrote the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. His name's John Mark, and he's part of Paul's fellow workers. And then finally, we're introduced to Jesus, who they call Justice, probably not to get confused with another Jesus. Um, I'm just guessing on that. That's not actually in the text. But these are the, these are the focus of his, this verse. These men are the focus of the verse. In verse 11, the second verse tells us why. He says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Now, this is a big deal. Because not only does it tell us a lot about these men, but it points us to some really amazing things. It tells us that these guys are, at least everyone except for Aristarchus, are men of the circumcision. Which means that they're Jews. They're, they're, they're from the nation of Israel, just like the Apostle Paul. And he says, they're the only Jews of my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And then he says, these men have been a comfort to me, which is a huge deal. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But this is how I want us to tackle this text this morning. What I want to do is I want to take the most important aspect of this passage, the most significant phrase that he uses here, and I want to drill down into that reality and see if there's a reason why Paul mentions these things. Is there a reason why this solar system of them being a comfort to him, them being men of the circumcision around them being fellow workers of the kingdom of God actually matters. And so um, let's look at this, this phrase, kingdom of God. And to be honest, this phrase is a little bit wild because this phrase is not used by Paul often. He doesn't often use the phrase kingdom of God. And so we have to ask, why are you using it? It's only 14 times in his writing, I think, that he uses this phrase, which is amazing 
uh, because it's used so dominantly throughout the Gospels. Why does he use it here? Well, there is one other time that he uses it in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. We'll look at this text. You guys will remember it, hopefully. He has delivered us from a domain uh, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so paul is saying here god delivered us from the domain of darkness and then he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son the kingdom of god now for a gentile in the first century, to hear this, if they have no framework of the scriptures in their mind, no understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, it would be, it would have very little meaning to them, very little value to them. But Paul knows that for someone who does know the Hebrew scriptures, especially for someone who's from the nation of Israel, a man of the circumcision, that person would know that the kingdom of God he's talking about here is the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Christ. And it is not a light thing for them. It is one of the biggest things for them. Paul is referencing as a current reality for Christians that, that the Christ would come, the Messiah, he'd enter the world and he would take his throne This isn't something that they would take for granted. This is something that would be huge for them. This is something that the people of Israel literally hoped for centuries to happen. And it is the the fulfillment of promises that were made over a thousand years ago, thousands of years ago to Abraham. And we're going to look at that in a second. I want to take the next few minutes really pressing into this phrase, kingdom of God, and trying to figure out why it's so significant based on what, it, what we already know from the Bible about it. So in Genesis 17, way back at the beginning of the Bible, God speaks to a man, Abraham. Before there's any Hebrew people, before there's any nation of Israel, before there's a Jewish people, there is one man. And God speaks to him. And this is the first promise of a kingdom in the Bible. God says to Abraham, kings shall come from you. He promises them this. This is, keep in mind, Abraham is a nomadic farmer. Doesn't even own a home. He has a tent and he's moving wherever the pasture needs to feed, where the, the, the animals need to feed. And um, God tells him that in his lineage, there will be kings, which means there will be a kingdom one day. And so for centuries, there's really not a lot spoken into this. We don't really know what, where God's kingdom is going, but we do know that at one point, when by God's grace, the nation of Israel has become a force to be reckoned with in the world, they actually demand a king. They want a king just like the other nations. And it's important to, des- to, to, to make a distinction here. This isn't a humble request to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken of to Abraham. This is a desire to, well, I'll get to it. Let's look at the text here. 1 Samuel 8 speaks to this, verse 7. Now, what's happening here is Samuel is complaining to God and saying, I don't know why they don't want you as king. And God responds to them and says, listen, it's not you. It's not you they're after. 
verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is critical to understand because what it means is that the earthly kingdom of Israel did not begin because they wanted to dishonor, to honor God. It began because they wanted to reject God as king over them. They are rejecting God as king and he in his mercy and grace gives in to what they're saying. He says, you, you can have that. You want that? You can have it. And we really need to recognize what's going on here because they're dissat- God is their king before this happens and they're dissatisfied with him as king and they want a man to rule over them. So this is where we're introduced to a man named Saul. Everyone here should know who Saul is. If you don't, you're about to find out. <laughs> um, this is the kind of king they're looking for. This is a man who is strong, as powerful, as mighty. He's the kind of king they're angling for. And the issue with him is that though he is blessed by God, though he is given authority and he's put on the throne, Saul does not ultimately love God, nor does he trust God with the throne. And he is eventually, after a colossal failure of being king, he is eventually succeeded by who? David. He's succeeded by David, a young shepherd from Bethlehem. David, God says, is a man after God's own heart. He loves God and he trusts God, and so God chooses him for this very reason, yet he too is encumbered by sin, his own sin. Despite that all that David represents as a king in the scriptures, there's still something very, very broken in him. Which should tell us, if we just pause a second as we go through this little narrative, that there's something wrong with humanity. There's something broken about this. That, that no matter who the king is, no one... No one is immune to sin. It infects every human being. And what that means is that every kingdom is infected by it. And you can't get out of that. There's no way to escape that reality. And this will be the dominant theme of God's people's kingdom unless he can do anything about it forever. Unless God can introduce a a king who is not encumbered by sin, who is not giving in to sin, this will be the theme. Now here's the situation is God, before David dies, goes to him and says, I'm going to promise you something. I want want you to, to know what I'm going to do to your lineage. David knows that if God doesn't intervene, there's no hope for the kingdom of Israel. There's no hope for the kingdom of God. Listen to what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the promise of God to David. This is the promise of God for the nation of Israel. And we know that in part, this prophecy is speaking of Solomon, David's son, the next in line. David's son Solomon will build a house for the Lord. He'll build a temple. And he will continue on his father's throne for a time. But we also know that he, like this text says, will commit iniquity. He will sin gravely. And yet God, still in this text, this promise, promises his steadfast love will never depart from him. He says that David's house, that David's kingdom will be made sure forever. This is the throne of David. This is, this is his throne that it's going to be established forever. And this is an amazing promise on two fronts. First off, it's an amazing promise because of the nature of the promise. That despite you, I will continue your line forever. There will be an offspring that will come from you and your throne will be established forever. But it's also an amazing promise because God knows exactly what's going to happen after he makes it. He knows exactly what's going to happen to the kingdom after he makes it. Solomon, David's son, will sin against God along with all the people of Israel. And it will lead the kingdom to first being broken into two, then being conquered, then being most of them sent off into exile. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God, will be decimated because of their sin. It will be laid low because of their sin. Yet, God has promised to David that somehow that throne will be established forever, that his steadfast love will not leave from David's offsprings. In other words, there will be an offspring that will come from you, and that offspring will reign forever. Now, we know that this isn't Solomon or any of the kings after him because they all die and they're buried Every single one of David's offspring to come will be died, will, will die, and will be buried in the ground. So this prophecy isn't found completion in them. It isn't found its fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment in them. Because they all die. David dies, Solomon dies, and everyone, every king after him will die. Except for one. Listen to Peter in Acts 2, starting with verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of this we are all witnesses. Acts 2, 29-32 in Peter's sermon at Pentecost says that one of David's descendants, one of his offsprings, did not see corruption, but was risen from the dead. And we know who that is. Jesus is the one who God spoke of when he said, I will be a father to him. 
and he will to me be a son. It was Jesus Christ. And so fast forwarding again and getting to the letter to the Colossians, when we read a passage like this and when the Colossians in the first century read a passage like this, that God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, this isn't a trivial thing. This is an extraordinary thing because this kingdom will never die. It will continue forever. Every other kingdom in the world will pass away and become a footnote in the history books. This kingdom will be the meaning of kingdoms at the end of the day, forever. And Paul says, of Mark and Barnabas and Justice, these men of the circumcision who are fellow workers for me, for the kingdom of God. When he says that about them, the connection he's making is with the fact that they are men of circumcision. If we go back to the promise God made in Genesis 17, that same day he tells Abraham, there will be kings that will come from you, is the day that he seals the people of Israel with a mark the sign of circumcision. This is the seal of the mark of the people of God, the seal of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And Paul wants the the Colossians to know, these men who, who are with me right now, who are sending this letter to you, these Israelites, these men of the circumcision, they are fellow workers with me for the kingdom of God, and they are a comfort to me. They are a comfort to me, and they should be a comfort to you. And the reason he, he mentions that they are a comfort to him specifically is because this isn't normal. This isn't a normal response. Most men of the circumcision, most Jews at this time, are not a comfort to Paul at all. In fact, they hate him and they want him to die. And they have since the very beginning of his walk with Christ. Whether it's unbelievers who are in Judea actively seeking his death for perceivably in their eyes, abandoning the Jewish faith, even though he would say, no, I'm embracing my Jewish faith. Or if it's Jewish Christians who profess Christ and they say circumcision is required to enter the kingdom of God, why are you teaching them by grace through faith, Paul? Either of these people hate Paul. They do not agree with what he's doing or what he's teaching. So for Paul to say, these men are a comfort to me. These men of the circumcision are a comfort to me. That is an incredible and glorious thing because it says that they know the truth. They know the meaning of circumcision. And so this goes to the point, really the point of the entire Colossian letter. How does someone enter the kingdom of God? How does someone experience the fullness of the kingdom of God, of what it means to be a Christian? Is it through circumcision? Is it through an act that they do on their own, a ritual? Worshiping angels is mentioned in Colossians 2. Is it through asceticism or fasting or certain action that you do? Does it happen because of something we do in and of us? And <clears throat> Paul is saying, no. This letter is his, his way of saying, absolutely not. And we're going to look at that in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13. Actually, back up a little bit. What I want to do is I want to look at Colossians 2, 8 through 11. 
Paul's statement to them is Jesus is enough. You don't need circumcision. You don't need all of these other things to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus alone has the fullness of that. So look at Colossians 2 verses, verse 8, starting with verse 8. He says, see to it, Colossian church in Risen Hope, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, Paul says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by something he calls the circumcision of Christ. So Paul's saying your entrance in the king, into the kingdom of God doesn't come through a philosophy or a tradition or a practice or anything you do physically, anything you can do. It comes through Jesus and an event that's referred to as the circumcision of Christ, a circumcision made without hands. It's not a physical thing that happens, but it is the putting off of the body of flesh. And this is why he is saying at the end of this letter, these men of circumcision are a comfort to me. Paul's argument is that it isn't the physical sign of circumcision that causes you to enter into the kingdom of God. That was only a pointer. And it pointed to a radical event that happens in the soul of a human being when they are united with Christ Jesus. Something that Paul calls here the circumcision of Christ. This is how we enter the kingdom that will never go away through this event. So what is the circumcision of Christ? What does he mean by that? It's a lot of very weird and just unclear language. So he explains in verse 11 through 13. So Colossians 2, 11 through 13. In him, Paul says, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Then he explains what it is. Having been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. And then he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus. Paul, in those few verses, is describing this radical event, this wild change of the human soul as the circumcision of Christ. He's saying, in that event, you were buried in baptism with Jesus, and you were raised through faith with Jesus. It is an act of God himself. This isn't a physical mark on the body. This is an internal shift in your very being. He says, though you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, everything in you that wanted to do things for yourself selfishly, that wanted to exalt your own desires, though you were dead in those trespasses, God made you alive. How you enter the kingdom of God is not an act you do. It is an act of God on your behalf. Which is exactly what Colossians 1, 13 through 14 
has already told us. It says here, 1 through, 1, 13 through 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. God did this. And God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That sentence is the circumcision of Christ. It is an incredible shift of our affections, of our desires, of our, what we put our faith and trust in. It is a change inside the soul of a human being where we go from being imprisoned and enslaved to sin in the domain of darkness to being carried by the grace of God into the, the freedom of the kingdom of God. We go from being dead to being in our trespasses to being alive with Christ Jesus. We go from being an enemy of the king to being a child of the king. And it is not because of something we do, but because of something God does in us. But Paul, in speaking this way, has created a huge problem for us. I don't know if you noticed it. The king of the kingdom that we've been transferred to is no David. And he's no Solomon. And he's no Saul. He's not these men. King Jesus is profoundly and intrinsically different from every other king that's ever been in the line of David. All of those kings were sinners. All of those kings were weak and broken men, but not Jesus. And we spent over the last year a lot of time talking about who he is and what he's done, but we spent an entire month in the Christ hymn. I don't know if you remember that. That was about a year ago. An entire month talking about the unparalleled value and excellency of Jesus Christ, his absolute supremacy. And to top that, if that wasn't enough, that he is all of these things, Paul in chapter 1 verse 19 says, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Colossians 2 verse 9, he says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, unlike King David and King Solomon and every other king on the face of the earth ever, when Jesus Christ is king, God is once more king of his kingdom because Jesus is God. The sin of the people of Israel in rejecting God is reversed in Christ, an offspring of David, who is God himself, becomes king. And he is, this is where the problem comes into play, perfect, righteous, holy. There is not a drop of sin or even a bad attitude in his veins. He is absolutely wonderful and resplendent in every way. And so the reason why this is a problem is that if Jesus is this worthy, there's no way we should be allowed in this kingdom because we'll just mess it up. There's no way we should be, not David, not Solomon, not any of the kings that followed, not any human being on the face of the earth. Think about David, for example, a man after God's heart, yet he victimized a woman during the time of war when he should have been out fighting and he had an affair with her and then he ended up, he ended up killing her husband just to cover it up. This is David the one who God made the promise to. Or think about Solomon, who joined himself with 
hundreds of women who were outside the faith that he had embraced as, as a son of David. And in doing that, he betrays God and betrays the people of God by embracing their religions and plunging the entire nation of Israel into darkness for centuries. Solomon has no right to be in the kingdom of God. David has no right to be in the kingdom of God. And if we're honest, we're honest with our, ourselves, or our own lives, our own walk, we know this is true about us too. So here's the question. How in the world does God solve this problem? How does he how does he do what we see in Colossians uh, 1, verses 13 and 14? And we get an answer in the same passage we've been in, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. I want you to look at this. It says, And you, this is how God transfers us into the kingdom, despite us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The only way we can gain access to this kingdom, the only way we can experience the fullness of this kingdom is through forgiveness and not just ordinary forgiveness. Not just what we do with other people who sin against us. Everything we've done must be erased. It must be absolutely removed from the records. The record of debt that we have, think about this, every single sin you've ever committed, every thought that you've lingered over, every passion in your heart that you knew was wrong, every ounce of that had to be nailed to the cross as though, and canceled as though they never, ever happened. This is the only way we can be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, into the kingdom of God. Our debt has to be nailed with Christ. If not, if this doesn't happen for us, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no hope of salvation. We need to feel that. That's what hangs on this verse. They look like words. They are words. But the reality underneath them is that if this doesn't happen, there is no forgiveness of sins. We are still in our sin. And so one of the reasons why the Colossian church, when they look at it, they, there's an effect that happens to them that's different than ours. Is We see the reality here, <laughs> but they see something else that's going on. Because in a Roman crucifixion, which they would be familiar with, being that they're part of the kingdom of Rome, there is a record that is nailed to crosses. There's a record that's nailed to the cross. There's a record of the crime of the person who's being crucified. This, this happens in every crucifixion. If you're a murderer or a thief or a rebel or any other kind of criminal, your record is put on the tree, on the cross, that you're nailed. And so the, the question that the Colossian believers, when they're hearing this letter read they're familiar at all with crucifixions, is what did they nail on Jesus' cross? 
What was the record that was nailed there? Luke 23, starting with verse 32, tells us. Luke 23, verse 32, begins, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It says the the men there cast lots to divide his garments, and, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. It says the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription, a record over him that said this. This is the king. It's the king of the Jews. This is the king. And ironically, that inscription is the only thing that's true that they recognize in that moment. It's the only thing Jesus is guilty of, is being the king. He is the beloved son of God that was promised to David centuries earlier. Jesus is the king, and the record says it. And yet, in God's eyes, when he looks at that cross, that's not the only record he sees. That's not the only thing he sees inscribed there. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, we have to recognize that it wasn't just a hammer and nails that put Jesus on that tree. It wasn't just those things. Our sin and our debt, in fact, innumerable records of debt, were nailed with Christ to that tree. That's what put him there. Him bearing the guilt of all of our sin. And King Jesus stays there on the tree until they are completely paid for. Until they're satisfied. His infinite worth consumes our eternal debt. It was because of his own perfection, holiness, righteousness that he could bear the penalty of our rebellion and it is the only way we could receive forgiveness of sins. And there's something extraordinary about this event as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Because Jesus hanging there on this tree as the wrath of God is poured out on him for our sin, something amazing happens. We see in this text, this passage, a living and breathing example of a person being delivered from the dominion of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. I want you to look at Luke 23, 39 through 43. Luke continues and says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and indeed we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks over to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We will be in paradise together. Now I want us to think about this scene. It's not an accident this scene is in the Bible for us to read 2,000 years later. Think about it carefully. Jesus, at the very moment that he's paying for this man's sin, on the cross, the man sees Jesus and recognizes who he is. This is the king. He's just. He doesn't deserve to be there. He's righteous. And he sees that in this moment that he is dying for the unjust. He is dying for him. And so when he sees this king who is willing to die for his enemy, he says, Jesus, remember me. He knows what's at stake. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus probably looks into his eyes and says, I'm telling you the truth. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I will make it happen In other words, he's saying to this man, you belong to me, and I'm going to take you home. You belong to me. They're both going to die that day, but he's going to take this man with him to paradise. He's saying, I've forgiven you. I have canceled your record of debt. I have delivered you from the domain of darkness, and I will transfer you into the kingdom of of the beloved son, me, my kingdom, my father's kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you will be with me in my kingdom forever. Forever. That reality is true about us. Jesus has said that to us. So when Paul, at the end of his letter to the Colossians, says these fellow workers for the kingdom of God, this is the kingdom they're fighting for. And this is how we gained access to it. Not a kingdom that requires from us circumcision or some ascetic act or any kind of physical act, but rather required that the son of the living God would die so that we would have life. We're going to worship in the next few minutes. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you've embraced him like this man on this tree has, I'm inviting you to participate in the Lord's Supper and Communion. And I want you, as we do this, as you take the elements, the bread that represents the body of Jesus given for us, and the blood that represents the blood, according to Matthew 26, that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, that was the cost to enter this kingdom. That was the cost for us to be embraced and engulfed with the fullness of it not through a physical act that we've done, not through anything that we could contribute, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ alone. This event is what the love of God looks like. It's what it looks like 
And it is an awesome thing for you to be able to see it. A lot of people can't see it. But that you can see it is an awesome thing. Every debt nailed to the cross, every sin canceled and forgotten. This is what it means to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the dominion of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of God forever. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father God, we need, as we worship here, as we take communion, as we just contemplate the radical, amazing thing that happened on the cross, we need the eyes of our hearts to be opened. There's a way we can know these things and just sit on the outside of them. And they have this superficial meaning. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my friends here. I want you to baptize us in the reality of what happened on the cross. So our pores are covered with who you are and what was accomplished, that we are filled with the love of God because we know what it looks like. We've seen it. We've tasted it. We've embraced the Father. He's embraced us in the cross. I pray that you would remove every distraction from our hearts, that as we sing songs about the love that, that, that was exerted in a massive, extraordinary act of God on that cross 2,000 years ago, that we would feel it, know it, that it would not be forgotten, and that our whole lives, our whole worldview, our, our reality would be changed forever because we've seen, we've locked eyes with the love of the living God in the cross, and we will be with him in his kingdom for an eternity. In the name of Jesus, amen.